This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We promised on last week's show that we'd be speaking with Andreas Kluth about his wonderful book, Hannibal and Me, What History's Greatest Military Strategists Can Teach Us About Success and Failure. But in fact, we're going to put Mr. Kluth off till next week's program. So we hope you weren't counting on that for today. But if you were, we promise we'll make it up to you next week. Today we're going to take a slight detour into Oscar land, something we don't do very much of on this program. But this correspondent was quite knocked out by the movie The Artist. So we're going to talk about that in our second segment today with both Gary Chu, film critic for KVMR and The Humor Times, as well as David Keene from the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum. Boy, it's been a long time since I was actually rooting for a film to win the Oscar, but um, I am in this case because I think if this one wins, we're going to see an effort to maybe return... Filmmaking to things like character development, plot, the actual acting, perhaps. This, of course, would be <laughs> quite at odds with the current emphasis in moviedom on special effects and crash scenes and, God knows, vampires. So we're going to have some fun with that in our second segment, but let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being February 23rd. It was on February 23rd in 1768 that by signing the Treaty of Masulipatam, the Nizam of Hyderabad, that's in India, submitted to British rule. From this, the British peoples learned about Indian food, and the Indian people learned about soccer, which frankly hardly seems like a fair trade. On this date in 1848, revolution erupted in Paris, France. Though that revolution did not result in any fundamental changes, to my knowledge. It did inspire revolutionaries all around the world. And speaking of revolutionary, on this date in 1883, U.S. chemist Charles Hall developed a revolutionary process for separating aluminum from its ore. This process led to the first practical commercial production of the metal, which, of course, has changed all of our lives. This, in fact, was a good day for inventions, on this date in 1893, Rudolf Diesel received a German patent for the diesel engine, which has been stinking up our environments ever since. And uh, three years later on this date, February 23rd, 1896, Leo Hirschfeld introduced the Tootsie Roll, which admittedly, not as practical as the diesel engine, smells a lot better. And it was on this date, February 23rd, in 1965, that the great English comedian Stan Laurel died at age 74. This was eight years after the death of his longtime comedy partner, Oliver Hardy. And yet, thanks to motion picture films, we have their work for all eternity, hopefully, both silent and talking pictures. Laurel and Hardy were one of the few comedians that were able to make that transition successfully from silent films into talkies. Which, by the way, I guess you would say is the MacGuffin of the artist. The MacGuffin is that wonderful Alfred Hitchcock term for the, uh, that object around which the plot centers. Like, for example, in The Maltese Falcon, it's the Falcon. Our quote of the day comes from an unknown 
named waitress in the Japanese restaurant, which Mr. Miller and I just had dinner in. My sushi arrived very late. Her explanation was, sorry about the delay. The chef was making it. Of course, my immediate thought was, who else would be making it? Nevertheless, it was first-class sushi, so I guess I shouldn't complain. Our quip of the day comes from Thomas Paine, who said, Character is much easier kept than recovered. Our joke of the day was sent to us by Roger, which is as follows. A group of terrorists burst into the conference room of a Ramada hotel where the American Bar Association was holding its annual convention. More than 500 lawyers were taken as hostages. The terrorist leader announced that unless their demands were met, they would release one lawyer every hour. Our stat of the day, according to CNNMoney.com, the share of young people with jobs is at its lowest level since the government began collecting statistics in 1948. Just 54.3% of people aged 18 to 24 were employed in 2011, down from 62.4% in 2007. Let's see if we can't jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for justice in the wake of a New Jersey man who had been hit by a car after playing beer pong for three hours, lost his bid to sue the bar where he'd been drinking. The judge ruled that Allen Berger had, quote, voluntarily engaged, unquote, in beer pong at Wicked Willie's Bar and had, quote, consumed alcohol to the point of diminished capacity, unquote. We have to ask in America, why isn't that the bar's fault? Conversely, it was a bad week for, take your pick, either Twitter or moderate Islam. With the news that a Saudi journalist faces the death penalty for sending out tweets perceived as insulting to the Prophet Muhammad. Reportedly, Hamza Kashgari, age 23, tweeted a series of musings on Muhammad's birthday addressing the prophet as a friend and equal, and saying, I will say that I have loved aspects of you, hated others, and could not understand many more. Apparently within hours, the Saudi blogosphere had exploded in death threats. Evidently, a Facebook group called The Saudi People Demand Hamza Kashgari's Execution gained more than 25,000 members within days. And, and why would Facebook allow such a group? Kashgari, uh, tried to flee the country and reach New Zealand where he hoped he could claim asylum, but was arrested in Malaysia at the request of Saudi authorities and sent back to Riyadh. We, we hope this does not have a bad outcome. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for Congress, after a Rasmussen poll found that 43% of Americans would rather have Congress run by a random selection of people from the phone book rather than by the current elected legislators. Only 5% think Congress is doing a good job. Of course, in America, as in Britain, we have a jury system, which seems to be made up of randomly selected citizens from a phone book. And yet there are people in America who thinks that system works. Well, this correspondent is not one of them, and we'll be talking more about that in a minute. We do want to take a brief moment to congratulate The Simpsons for their 500th episode. 
they've been on the air a lot longer than we have, but we got to 500 a month ahead of them because we're operating 52 weeks out of the year, and they're not. Gotta say, I was not a fan of The Simpsons when it first came out, but they have certainly won me over, as they have won over most of America with their smart comedy, year in and year out, with some uh, hilarious situations and some really terrific voice acting. And we think it's great, too, that we've shared a few guests over the years, including Ed Begley Jr., Fred Willard, and Sir Mix-a-Lot. Oh, actually, Mr. Merlin reminds me that uh, I never did the follow-up call with Fred Willard to actually get him on the show, and I lost Ed Begley's number. And apparently, Mr. Mix-a-Lot's appearance was confined to our use of Babies Got Back as bumper music. I'm hooked and I can't stop staring. Oh, baby, I want to get whipped up. All right, let's go back to talking about the jury system briefly. An interesting piece in the Sacramento News and Review, February 16th issue, about the lone juror, a first-person account of a jury member who held out on a recent gang shooting trial. I recommend this article to everyone, but maybe not for the reasons that the author would think. Yes, we think the jury system sucks. and By the time you get done reading this article, if you didn't think so before, you probably will after. Because basically, as this article points out, once you manage to get yourself onto a jury, you as a jury member operate under the rules of engagement that are, I guess, similar to maybe the divine right of kings. If you decide you want to hang up a jury for any reason whatsoever, you have that power. Rather disturbingly, the article reveals how the defense attorneys had basically Googled the members of the jury, including the author, and then made pitches directly to them as they sat in the jury box. Noted the author, the attorneys must have done some internet research on their jurors and reached the conclusion that I was the one most likely to champion an acquittal. When Cometo began his final summation of the jury, he noted that in order to render a guilty verdict, the law required us to have an abiding conviction of a defendant's guilt. Then while looking directly at me, he said, our founding fathers had large vocabularies. They understood words like abiding and conviction. Nowadays, people have smaller vocabularies. Not everyone knows what these words mean. Abiding means enduring. A conviction isn't a belief, it's a certainty. With their large vocabularies, the people who created our judicial system were telling future jurors that they cannot find a defendant guilty unless they can live the rest of their lives certain of that guilty verdict. Again and again, he hammered at the word vocabulary while staring right at me. Clearly, he had Googled my name and discovered that for the last five years, I've written a regular column for a monthly online journal called The Vocabula Review, which caters to word lovers and deals primarily with language, linguistics, and related subjects. Does this sound like a sensible system to you that permits the defense attorneys to Google you and then make a pitch to you as you sit in the box? Unfortunately, this article suffers from 12 angry men syndrome, which I think seems to just have a seductive effect on liberals everywhere. In that movie, Henry Fonda tries to convince everyone else on the jury, and succeeds, by the way, in acquitting a defendant who, when you started the deliberations, looked like it was an open and shut case of him being guilty. This seems to have galvanized liberals for the past generation or two into believing that, you know, the right thing is done if you can find some way to acquit. Of course, I hasten to add when I say that, That opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. This article reveals in some detail how when the jury came to a a logjam, 
the way the court dealt with it was bring the jurors out and read them some more boilerplate and send them back in to deliberate some more. To quote from the piece, Seven days into our deliberations, we remained at an impasse. Some of our problems were due to our ignorance of the law. We were given 48 pages of jury instructions, but not all of them were clear to us. He notes that when it comes to uh, the rules regarding circumstantial evidence, they were required by law to interpret the evidence only in a way that was favorable to the defendant, assuming, of course, there's two possible interpretations. While the jurors are deliberating, they can't decide whether the actual video of the crime constitutes circumstantial evidence. Notes the piece. The others insisted that the video was direct evidence and could be interpreted either way. We sent a letter to the judge asking him whether the video was direct or circumstantial evidence. His response was a terse note saying, in essence, you have reviewed all the evidence in the case. If you have questions about how to proceed, refer to your jury instructions. And you wonder, ladies and gentlemen, why it is things get thrown out on appeal. Like murder convictions of the speed freak killers down in Stockton, which I think we'll get to a little bit later in the show. And again, maybe not. Anyway, back to the article. It struck us as odd that six attorneys, a judge, and dozens of other behind-the-scenes legal professionals had put thousands of hours of work into this case and then thrown the outcome of the matter into the hands of 12 random citizens, none of whom knew what circumstantial evidence was. A juror who worked as a nurse summed it up this way. This makes no more sense than if a bunch of doctors were to examine a patient, conduct numerous extensive tests on him, and then place all the medical information they'd gathered into the hands of 12 people pulled randomly off the street and tell them, here, come up with a treatment plan for the patient. Anyway, to cut to the chase, 11 people were convinced of the defendant's guilt in this case, at least one of the defendants, and the person that wrote this article held out for acquittal. So what they then got was a hung jury... And the defendant walked, unless they want to retry him, and God knows if they will. Because as the author pointed out, one of the defense attorneys, while looking directly at him in the jury box, said, remember, you are one jury of 12, but you are also 12 juries of one. If you don't believe a conviction is called for in this case, any one of you has the power to stop it from happening. And I know some of you out there think that's a wonderful thing, and I just want to add that yours truly has his doubts. Other countries seem to conduct trials using judges. Isn't that what judges are supposed to do? Only in Britain and America do we have this idea that 12 people pulled off the street are who you want to present evidence to. I know if I was guilty, that's what I'd want, but how well are we the public served by this insane system? And speaking of rules and regulations, The Economist uh, cover... February 18th issue talked about overregulated America, taking a very economist view that we have too many rules, too many rules, too many rules and regulations. Although The Economist tends to be a business oriented conservative publication, all things considered, we're sympathetic to this view. And I find myself agreeing with the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial some months back, which is, which is a rarity. But the piece by Chip Meller and Dick Carpenter said, onerous and usually pointless licensing rules are keeping people out of work. Some state governments in America impose absurd requirements on a huge assortment of professions, including tourist guides, funeral attendants, home entertainment installers, florists, and makeup artists. Advocates say such licenses protect public health and safety by mandating minimum schooling and tests. But in fact, they act primarily as needless barriers around occupations 
perfectly suited to those entering the workforce, mid-career switchers, and pink slip recipients. Just look what it takes to qualify, for example, as a manicurist. In Alaska, a would-be manicurist must complete 12 hours of training to work. In Iowa, the requirement is 40 hours, but in Alabama, it's 700 hours. Ask the magazine, does anyone believe consumers in Alabama are in need of that much more protection from unsafe manicurists? Of course, we do have to add that in fairness, Radio Parallax has not compared the nails of Alaskans to Alabamans. This very topic uh, popped up in the Sacramento Bee last week, article by Tori Van Oot, uh, noting that pet groomers in the state could face licensing under a proposed bill. And I can't resist quoting from this piece. An uneven cut wasn't the only issue Sherry Tess noted after she picked up her toy poodle from a Modesto pet spa. The shampoo and shear left two-year-old Sophie with an open wound on her backside. Ointment, later applied to the raw skin by the shop owner, turned out to be glue adhesive that had to be removed by a veterinarian. Tess was shocked to later learn that the groomer didn't have to undergo training or become licensed to primp her pet. Holy mackerel, I wonder if she called 911. So I'm grateful for the editorial commentary by the good people at the Sacramento Bee who sounded off on this issue by asking, does the state need to regulate every activity? with the subheadline, Bill to Oversee Groomers is Worthy of the Doghouse. Note of the editors, to protect consumers and their pets, there's a more cost-effective alternative. Let the marketplace take care of bad pet groomers. Groomers depend on repeat business. If the groomer regularly injures people's pets, customers don't return and the groomer goes out of business. It's as simple as that. The heavy hand of the state is unnecessary. Of course, this does give me pause to think back to a knucklehead I paid to come out and work on my backyard spa. After screwing up the job, I think eight times, I finally called in someone else who took a look at the wiring and said, ooh, ooh, when I see this, I'm supposed to report it. On the other hand, if those knuckleheads had had more regulation from the state, how much better do you think they would be supervised? How much better do you think their work would be? In this correspondent's opinion, uh, probably not any better at all. I say this in the wake of trying to get the California Medical Board to act I mean, in this case, we're talking about actual physicians in the state of California. In my particular instance, the case of an incompetent one, I was trying to get the board to slap down, and unfortunately, they refused to act. So basically, I do have my doubts that if someone uses too strong a shampoo on Fifi, that uh, the state of California is going to jump right in and set things right. You know what I mean? I also want to give an added word to the good people over at the B for their editorial piece on how a ban on food trucks near schools is going way too far. They did publish a map a few days before showing where prospective legislation would ban food trucks. (laughs) It looked like someone took a shotgun to a map of Sacramento. Under the B, if if legislators want to combat obesity, there are other proactive, helpful ways. Encouraging and funding programs to get healthy local produce in the school cafeterias. Helping schools plant vegetable gardens. Enhancing public education on good nutrition for children. Those would be more effective than this heavy-handed bill. Speaking of regulations, how about this one? Dr. Christian Sandrock, health officer of Yolo County and associate professor of medicine at UC Davis, has ruled that if you, a doctor, elect not to get a flu shot, you're going to have to wear a mask when you see patients. And by the way, regardless of whether any symptoms you might have could have been prevented by a flu shot, which is always a guess on a year-to-year basis, 
Well, it doesn't matter. Then apparently Sutter, Kaiser Permanente, Mercy, and the UCD Medical Center are going to enforce that rule. This would have been the first year out of about the past 15 wherein I would not have to wear a mask since I did get my flu shot this year. But a lot of docs like to just take their chances on a year-by-year basis because the flu shot is very imperfect. It's still a good idea when there's uh, threats of some nasty flus going around, as there have been in the last couple years. But this rule strikes this correspondent as a bit excessive. Anyway, let's take a break in this segment. Before we go, let's, uh, let's quote from the other publication we've been quoting today, back and forth, I think. Well, we've done The Economist, The Bee, and The News and Review. Let's go back to The News and Review. Article by Auntie Ruth about uh, something we talked about in this program before, the New York Times piece on activism by Tea Partiers. Auntie Ruth noted that she, too, was surprised by the article in The Bee, which is a reprint from The Times, titled, Activists Fight Green Projects, Seeing UN Plot. And the article depicted something maybe we didn't spell out clearly enough, which was that they were showing up at planning meetings to denounce bike lanes. Oh, and Auntie Ruth, these are the times in which we live. But anti-bike lanes, anti-speed bump, that Ruthie can understand. But anti-bike lane, that's like being anti-shower curtain or anti-turn signal. She noted that the article went on to summarize the Tea Party's national efforts against Agenda 21, a non-binding 1992 UN resolution that encouraged nations to use fewer resources and conserve open land. The Tea Party's efforts, which extend past bike lanes to high-speed rail and preserving rural lands, have an old-fashioned X-Files paranoia to them. And maybe we are getting at the root of this whole resistance to high-speed rail we've been puzzling over for the past few months. Might be on to something, Annie Ruth. She concluded by noting, Be glad you live in Sacramento, where bike lanes are not particularly controversial. According to Ed Cox, the city's bicycle and pedestrian coordinator, Bike lanes are scheduled to be painted on I, J, 5th, 9th, and 10th Streets, and the Capitol Mall. Some are being considered for reconfiguration as one-lane streets with bicycle lanes on either side of the traffic. The work will be completed this year. And of course, Davis has been one of the national and international leaders in the use of bikes to get around. Something we have always saluted, and we hope that in the weeks to come we will be able to go to the United States Bicycling Hall of Fame, located right here in Davis, on the route this correspondent takes in to do this show. And we expect to do that sometime in the spring. Let's take a break and talk about something radically different. That would be the cinema. I'd virtually stopped going out to movies in recent years, but uh, was quite knocked out by the artist, which is up for an Oscar this Sunday, and want to talk to you about it in our second segment. We're going to have some fun with this. Don't go away. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Superman. All I wanna do is fly. 